Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. And now, part three on the music of E.T. the Extraterrestrial. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode is our final listen to the music of E.T. the Extraterrestrial, a film from 1982 by Universal Pictures, with a story by Steven Spielberg, written by Melissa Matheson, produced by Kathleen Kennedy, directed by Spielberg, edited by Carol Littleton, featuring vocal sound design by Ben Burt, with a film score by John Williams. In our last episode, we took it from the top and began our detailed look at how the movie is musically constructed. We'll pick up where we left off and continue through the end of the movie, paying particular attention to the film's operatic musical ending. But before we do that, I want to give a little background information on more of our creatives so that we may fully appreciate the team that gave us this film and its music. The first is film editor Carol Littleton whose career has most prominently featured a longtime collaboration with writer-director Lawrence Kasdan. Her films include The Big Chill, Silverado, The Accidental Tourist, and many more. After working with Lawrence Kasdan on 1981's Body Heat, their first collaboration together, Littleton was recommended to Steven Spielberg for an interview to edit E.T., known at that time by its working title, A Boy's Life. When you're first putting things together realize what you're actually doing in the narrative and take your time. You can always cut it shorter, you can always cut it another way. But be very mindful of the elements that you're dealing with, the opening themes, introducing the characters, introducing the place. All of these things that actually come from theater and from literature are really important. That's, that's what we do when we're cutting. We're writing the film, but this time we're writing it in images and sound and music. So you have to really think like a writer when you start putting films together. One of Carol Littleton's greatest sensibilities, in addition to her deep understanding of drama and character, is how musical she is. Here's a quote from Michael Mattesino from the 35th anniversary soundtrack from La La Land Records. Quote, Since Steven Spielberg's regular editor, Michael Kahn, had been assigned to his production of Poltergeist, the director turned to Carol Littleton, a collaborator of writer-director Lawrence Kasdan, for E.T., Here's Spielberg talking, quote, She's one of the few editors I know who cuts to music, Spielberg wrote in American Cinematographer. He goes on. And she selected some fantastic music for our temp tracks to cut to. She found some Shostakovich, to which she cut the first movement of the film, The Chase in the Forest, and Howard Hansen's Romantic Symphony, which we paste the final goodbye scene to, and even some of the soundtrack from Hal Ashby's film Being There some of that wonderful music by Johnny Mandel. We were very successful in putting some of our images to music and then taking the music out so John Williams could have a fair shot 
at imagining his own themes. Now, Mattesino goes on. Littleton's temp track selections, particularly the plaintive harp and piano theme from Being There, a sparse score which also used a jazzy take on also Sprock Zarathustra, got Spielberg thinking about E.T.'s music months before showing the picture to Williams. While on location in a Los Angeles suburb, he told documentary cameraman John Toll, quote, this is Spielberg here, it's to be a very expansive score, and yet it's going to focus down in a rather intimate style because it's a love story. We need pure violins and oboes and harp and piano and a rather quiet ensemble, probably comprised of over 70 musicians. This movie is a tiny epic, and I think John's score will be very suitable for that description. End quote. So, Carol Littleton is hugely responsible for the nature of this score. It's big, epic, sweeping nature, but also it's smaller, more intimate sound, like we heard in the friendship theme. This would serve not only as a stylistic guide for Williams, but it brought a natural musicality to the pacing of each scene in E.T. So we mentioned some temp track cues there. Littleton turned to 20th century American composer Howard Hansen and chose his second symphony from 1930 called The Romantic Symphony for textures and timing for the end sequences. We'll examine that music later in this episode as we get to it. For the opening shadow play sequence of E.T., Littleton used temp music by 20th century Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich. To give it that gothic vibe, perhaps she used his piece called Lady Macbeth of Mzensk, a piece which nearly cost him his life after the tyrant Joseph Stalin heard it in 1936, but that's for a different podcast. Or maybe she used the haunting tones of his Eighth Symphony. For some of the quieter pieces, which most likely inspired William's friendship theme, as I mentioned, with harps and strings, she looked at Johnny Mandel's score to the 1979 classic Peter Sellers film, Being There. I'm sure you'll sprout some thoughts in a few days. I will, Ben. Yes. Sorry, sir. I thought you were going to come out with another one of your jests about the elevator. Excuse me. Being There also features a funky version of Also Sprock Zarathustra, which is a fun coincidence to our talk about science fiction and the perfect fifth. And speaking of perfect fifths, which I know we've discussed a lot in this series on E.T., I'd like to briefly turn our attention to the field of sound editing and sound design. I mentioned the wonderful, hyper-real animal growls and the ORVs at the top of the movie, but there's also one really nice sound effect nod to the music, which has to do with the aliens and their heart lights. At the beginning of the film, when the aliens all communicate to each other with their heart lights, we hear this. And what is that sound? 
It is made up of two different tones that are, you guessed it, a perfect fifth apart. As in, and as in. If you remember Spielberg's quote about how John Williams is E.T., this sound effect, with its perfect fifth giving us the sounds of their very hearts, their core, certainly makes this point quite literally. Now, I don't know if this is intentional or purely coincidence, but it's definitely fun to notice that the perfect fifth, which comprises all of our score's main themes in E.T., is also the very sound that emanates from our extraterrestrial friends. And before we move on, I wanted to discuss a bit more of the sound of E.T. and E.T. himself. I have, up until this point, given us five reasons for why I believe the film is so successful, with the fifth reason being flawless execution. Well, a crucial part of this is that through the magic of cinema, we believe, for one hour and 55 minutes, that E.T., the E.T. we're seeing on screen, is real. This Carlo Rambaldi-designed creature, with multiple artisans bringing him to life, including actors Pat Billen and Matthew Demerit, mime Caprice Roth performing the hands, and a small army of puppeteers, was photographed and lit perfectly by director of photography Alan Daviau, and was beautifully staged and directed by Spielberg. Like Yoda before him, if we don't believe that E.T. is real, the emotional honesty in this movie will collapse. Even editor Carol Littleton, who is, of course, looking at all the dailies that have been printed from set, has stated that the kids were the easy part on the set, as Spielberg had them all so engaged that her biggest challenge as an editor was finding those moments among reels of printed takes where the illusion of E.T. was pulled off and he actually felt real. This was before CGI. This was all, you know, we had different forms of E.T. We had an E.T., a little man who was dressed in a suit. We had just the torso with the eyes and the, this, you know, literally just to the shoulders, to the head, with the eyeballs. And there were, I think, 12 guys operating pneumatic controls. So we'd shoot 10 minutes of film, and I'll be damned if we didn't <laughs> cut the films around what worked with E.T. You know, if the, if the puppet worked, well, that's what we're going to use and do everything else around it. And what about his voice? In order to convincingly design the voice of E.T., Spielberg turned to the man who gave R2-D2 and Chewbacca their voices. The man who made the falcon fly, who made lightsabers hum, and made Indy's whip crack like none other. He turned to Academy Award-winning sound designer Ben Burt. Are you really alive? Alive! When I did the picture, I had to give off-camera dialogue, you know, and rather than just have the script person read the dialogue out loud in a normal tone of vo voice, I began to say things like, E.T. Um, you know, e. phone home. Ben Burt found Pat Welsh. She was not an actress, and uh, although she had always wanted to be an actress, and in fact had briefly pursued uh, ambitions in those directions sometime back in the 1930s or 40s, I explained to her what I was trying to do and would she be interested in auditioning, and uh, took her inside and had her do some readings. E.T. Home phone. So I took her voice. And I changed it just a little bit electronically. I changed the pitch and lowered it just a little bit. Um. I would mix her voice with the breathing 
or the inhale and exhale of one of the animal sounds that I would recorded, something that was sort of non-human. All told, there were 18 different contributors to the voice of E.T., including the animals, as well as the various human characters who might have provided a snort or a burp. There were um, some other children of friends of mine that I recorded uh, breathing and making funny noises. I really just collected a lot of different pieces of things to, to put it all together. Gertie, come here, come on. By the way, Ben Burt also used Pat Welsh for the voice of Bausch, or Princess Leia in disguise, in Return of the Jedi. Just relax for a moment. You're free of the carbonite. You have hibernation sickness. With such a fantastic team working on E.T., setting you up for success, it's no wonder why John Williams was able to deliver such powerful emotion with his perfect film score. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. Don't crash, please. When we last left our characters, they had just sailed across the sky in what is the first big moment where the film music and our characters' emotions are truly set free. From there, we come back down to Earth and Elliot and E.T. carry out their mission. Use E.T.'s homemade device, made up of a speaking spell, which was another moment where I identified with Elliot, because I had one of those, as well as a speak and read, and was obsessed with its electronic voice, but I digress. And the music takes a break here for a moment. By contrast to E.T. and Elliot's adventures in the woods, a very worried mother tries to keep it together as she extinguishes the Halloween candles around the house but doesn't quite succeed in keeping it together as she shows signs of frustration by knocking out that last flame. We then cut to the woods, and the sound does the work for us at first. Almost as if Elliot has stepped into E.T.'s world, a world of nature, of botany, of woodland creatures. And while such images and sounds are usually scary to young kids, somehow we feel safer out here than we did back in the house with the walls seemingly closing in on our characters. Elliot helps E.T. set up the device, and then we cut back to Mom, who is going to go out looking for her kids. We're reminded that her struggle and hurt as a single mom is very real, as she utters just one word while driving away. And boy, are we glad that E.T. and Elliot left the house, because right as Mary leaves to find her kids, Keys and the gang disturbingly go in and search the house all set to the Keys theme. By contrast, we cut back to E.T. and Elliot in the woods, and we get a childlike, almost toy-like variation on the flying theme, giving us a mechanical, yet soft version that underscores both the emotion and the homemade phone device. They share a nice moment in the woods together, both scratching the same itch on their face, a reminder of their connection that they both feel the same things. As the wind picks up, the call theme comes in on clarinet, 
right as the device is about to literally call or phone home. As the device starts working, we hear the flying theme as the two rejoice. Their mission is accomplished. Together, they've brought E.T. one step closer to safety. This really is the inflection point. Elliot and E.T. have brought all of our characters out of hiding and into their true emotional states. E.T., of course, wants to go home. Elliot needs E.T.'s friendship. Mary can no longer hide her maternal and marital suffering. Keys and his gang abandon all pretense of hiding and flat-out invade their empty house. It seems that the highest of highs in terms of emotion, which we had just experienced flying through the woods, is coming down. And we're cross-fading into a period of dread, of potential darkness. It starts with our other characters, as I mentioned before. Keys and his colleagues invading the house, Mary going out in search of her children. But that darkness starts to invade our main characters, E.T. and Elliot, as well. Elliot says to E.T. after subtly coughing, a sign of illness, that it's getting late and that they need to go home. E.T. responds by pointing to his chest and saying, Ouch. Now, does that mean he's homesick, or is he telling Elliot that he's getting physically ill? Or perhaps is he feeling Elliot's pain coming on, anticipating Elliot's emotional outburst that's about to take place, as Elliot realizes for the first time that he's going to lose his new best friend? As Elliot begs E.T. to stay home, Williams gently gives us the flying theme. E.T. looks away as the wind picks up again, and we get the call theme as E.T. gently says, Home. Oh. This brings Elliot to tears, and he falls to the forest floor. But what follows is pure movie magic. Melissa Matheson's stroke of genius when writing their emotional bond means that E.T. feels Elliot's heartbreak. As E.T. looks down in love and empathy for Elliot, who has crumbled in sorrow and tears, we somehow see that love coming from this animatronic marvel. And Williams makes sure we hear that love as E.T. wipes Elliot's tears and strokes his hair. The scene ends with the call and E.T. saying home. But this beautiful moment doesn't last long. Williams fades out, and we fade to white on the next morning. Foggy, eerily quiet, filled with dread, cold. And E.T. is gone. The lack of music in this section leaves us emotionally unsure of what's happening here. We've lost our musical guide. We're as confused as Elliot. E.T.? And as confused as Elliot's mother, and we share in her worry back at the house as the police officer conducts a missing persons interview. Uh, how was he dressed when last seen? Our suburban problems have come roaring back, and in a heartbreaking turn, Mary has internalized Elliot's disappearance, perhaps blaming her marital problems 
or blaming herself. Is there anything to indicate that he, he might have run away? Any family problems or recent arguments? My father's in Mexico. Um, my husband and I just separated recently, and it hasn't been easy on the children. But my father's in Mexico. And just look at Dee Wallace playing this beat, trying to keep composure in a moment of tremendous pain. And right as she's about to break, Spielberg reveals Elliot with the closing of a refrigerator door. Dang, Spielberg, honestly, just beautifully staged. Again, through all of this, no music. The stillness after such an emotional high means we have to sit in this discomfort with our characters. And Elliot asks the question to Mike, is E.T. here? And of course, he's not. You gotta find him, Mike. Where is he? In the forest. The bald spot. You gotta find him. From here on out, the musical emotions are unleashed. When Mike goes searching for E.T. and is chased by the government boogeyman, the neighborhood and keys themes are back, but the music is much bolder, much more action-oriented, stating them loud and proud with the brass. Music grows desperate as Mike reaches the woods and can't find E.T. The sound of thunder is heard overhead. The neighborhood theme is interrupted when our worst fears are realized. And we see E.T. laying sick and dying by a stream. The strings weep their way through the flying theme. With French horns accenting the fragile creature's perilous condition. Moments later, we get a small homage to a western shootout, as if the bad guy just strolled into town to confront our heroes. We see Keys in silhouette at the foot of the driveway approaching the house. His keys jangle like cowboy spurs, as if he's entering a showdown. Chimes sound in the score, like death is in the air. And the music doesn't quit there. It grows in horror as Mary is finally let in on E.T.'s existence. When we see him laying sick on the bathroom floor, that's terrific. We hear that death bell again. As Mary rushes her children down the stairs in a frenzy, we hear the call as the door opens. Wait, did aliens just arrive at the front door? No. In an almost Vader-like homage, a human being in a USA astronaut suit, breathing heavily, marks the beginning of the home invasion. 
At last, we've gone full circle with Close Encounters, only this time, we, human beings, are the perceived threat. And when the invasion is complete, just to drive the point home, we are treated to pounding percussion as a military-like force, lined up like soldiers, marches through the neighborhood towards the house. Our characters and this story have truly entered the belly of the beast. When their takeover is complete and night has fallen, we hear the haunting gothic alien motif from the opening of the movie, this time on organ giving it even more horror movie vibes. This government takeover by strange grown-ups is the real alien threat, the unnatural force that is truly out of place here. We see and hear Keyes suiting up to go inside, making his long way down the plastic tunnel into the house, Keyes still jangling. The Keyes theme comes to a crescendo with horns, trumpets, and percussion as he makes his way into the house, and we see his face for the first time. Now here, something curious happens. Keyes shows his true face. And not only is it the first time we've seen an adult face in this whole movie other than Mary, the mom, but Keyes' face is surprisingly gentle, almost kind-looking through his suit. Maybe it's because he looks like an adult version of Elliot. Suddenly, the movie has shifted into the adult world, and we now see a lot of adults, doctors, technicians, all working to understand this particular situation, and more importantly, to help. Because E.T. and Elliot are very, very sick. Here, the movie becomes a legitimate hospital drama, as real as any emergency room. In fact, the doctors in this scene are real-life doctors from around California, according to child actor Robert McNaughton. But it's a hospital drama that plays as real, 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 i.e. no music. At least, not for a while. We are in reality here. And the surprising effect that this has is that it humanizes and normalizes what we've perceived as a threat this entire time. Keys. Keys speaks to Elliot and says, E.T. came to me too. I've been wishing for this since I was 10 years old. I don't want him to die. What can we do that we're not already doing? It's interesting. Keys has, in an incredibly short amount of screen time, become a fascinating character. Spielberg seems to state that Keyes used to be Elliot. He's a grown-up version of Elliot. E.T. is important to the adult world. But it was a child who, without fear, befriended him and kept him safe. I'm glad he met you first, he says to Elliot. Keyes is seemingly demonstrating an understanding of the draconian nature of their hunt, as if the adult world is some leviathan that must be navigated through and ultimately escaped from. It moves our characters closer to being on the same page and allows room for the following scene and following music cue. E.T. E.T. and Elliot, who have been telepathically linked, are starting to separate. As they do, Williams gives us the flying theme, gently on clarinet. E.T. tells Elliot to stay, as if he's telling Elliot that he's letting their connection go. Stay. And 
the music plays in a surprisingly major key, never letting the love out of the scene, even in the face of tragedy. Mike goes off to sleep in the home that E.T. made for himself in the kid's closet. And as we see him surrounded by dolls and toys, Williams gives us childlike Celeste that seems to celebrate the beauty of these children's connection to E.T. The cue ends as morning arrives, foreshadowing the end of the movie with the call. And here we arrive at what may be the darkest scene in all of E.T. The flowers wilt, and Williams finally gives us tragedy in the score. But only briefly. He's got no pulse of respiration. Then we arrive at peak hospital drama. The music goes out again. But when E.T. flatlines, the music comes in and gives us descending lines in the score, going down, 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 draining all hope out of the scene. through this scene without crying because of what happens next. In an astounding feat of acting and directing, Spielberg off-camera directs young Drew Barrymore through a very scary situation, and she naturally bursts into tears. Kiss her on the top of the head, please, Dee. Tell her you love her. I love you. They put the machine on his chest, and they're going to give him a shock to try to make him come back. And when they give him the shock, it's very loud and it makes you jump and cry even more. And they're putting it on his chest now, and he presses the button, and it goes pow! Okay, you wipe the doll's face too. Thank you. Movies are so sad. In the final mix, when the first defibrillator shock hits E.T., the re-recording mixer cranks the sound to a terrifying level. As the camera cuts over to Gertie's startled reaction and breakdown. This is followed by a mother-son connection that happens for the very first time in the whole movie. Mary reaches out to her son, Elliot. Finally, 
almost an hour and a half into the movie, we see these two share a loving moment and an emotional connection. Gertie looks on, and Mike arrives and sees them together. Keyes also sees this private family moment during the death of E.T., and is visibly moved. Williams ends the sequence with more dissension, but not in the strings, this time in the brass, stronger. Giving us a sense of hopelessness. The doctors call time of death. Yeah, I don't know. All right, I'm calling. What time do you have? 1536. 15 hours, 36 minutes. No music as the doctors and scientists, led by Keyes, remove their astronaut or almost hazmat-like helmets out of respect for E.T.'s passing and the overwhelming emotion of the moment. Physicians remove their surgical masks, and Keyes gently closes E.T.'s eyes as Elliot looks on. Later, Keyes gives Elliot the chance to say goodbye, and we hear that cue that we heard earlier in the movie as Elliot gives a eulogy of sorts. It's sad, but strangely beautiful, making the moment bittersweet. As sorrowful as this is, the music conveys so much love. then, surprisingly, E.T. springs back to life as his connection to his people is restored. The call must have worked. They're coming back. And what happens for the next 15 minutes plus, from here until the very end of the movie, is driven by some of the greatest music ever written for motion pictures. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to the soundtrack show. You know, I never thought of E.T. as a science fiction film. I saw this as a story about a family, a dysregulated family in disrepair after suffering the tragedy of divorce and how E.T. was able to give so much esteem back to Elliot and to Gertie and to Michael and in a sense pulled that family together and had given such a great gift to that broken family that when E.T. sadly flew off at the end, that family would never be the same in a good way. And, and E.T. was an ambassador for peace. And uh, that was the intention, and that's the role that E.T. played and continues to this day to play. Great Course's music lecturer, Dr. Robert Greenberg, says that opera is the single most important musical invention of the last 400 years. The idea of having music in drama isn't new. It's as old as the Greeks. But opera with its idea that drama can be set entirely to music, at first in its history rigidly through recitations and then breaking for songs, also known as recitative and aria, then later being totally fluid throughout the entire plot, opera gave way to operettas, melodramas, musicals, and yes, film scores. Our drama is almost always, in some form or another, set to music. Early film composers came from the operatic and symphonic world. Heck, Korngold wrote film scores and operas. 
Max Steiner used to call movies dialogue concertos. Music and movies. Movies and music. Throughout the history of moving pictures, they have always been linked. And certainly in the last half century or so, our most influential and popular dramatic entertainment has been entirely set to music. And in 1982, just a few years after the 19th century operatic style became important again with Star Wars, E.T. and its finale serve as possibly the greatest example of how important the invention of opera, or dramatic work set to music, has been to our musical and entertainment world culture. One of the key reasons why the ending of E.T. is so operatic is because, as we'll hear, there's very little dialogue, particularly towards the very end. It's all music and visuals. But even more so, the ending of E.T. is operatic because it was, in very real-world terms, conceived and then delivered with music in the driver's seat. First, editor Carol Littleton cut the entire ending to temp music. But second, when John Williams went to score the final picture, he had trouble hitting all the cues that he needed to hit and still get the required emotion that he wanted out of his orchestra. In other words, film composers have to hit multiple points of synchronization as they're writing to a locked picture. It's a bit of a mathematical puzzle, as we've discussed in previous episodes. They want to accent this particular moment, or that sudden dramatic shift, with the orchestra, and yet at the same time, want it to sound natural and fluid. Well, the demands on E.T.'s ending were so strong that Williams struggled to get the perfect performance. Finally, Steven Spielberg came up with a solution. Here's a quote from the La La Land Records 35th Anniversary Edition of E.T. Quote, An often-told story about the creation of the E.T. score concerns the bike chase cue and the departure, both of which were recorded on the first day of the scoring sessions. Williams explained, and this is John Williams here, You can imagine how many precise musical accents are needed and how each one has to be exactly in the right place. I wrote the music mathematically to configure with each of these occurrences. When the orchestra assembled and I had the film in front of me, I made attempt after attempt to record the music to synchronize exactly with all of those arithmetic parameters in the film. But I was never able to get a perfect recording that felt right musically and emotionally. I remember Stephen coming up to the podium and saying he would take the film off the screen so we could record the music on its own, with its natural phrasing, ebb and flow. When we had the musical performance we felt gave us the most lift and the most sense of exaltation, Stephen then made a few editorial adjustments to conform the film to the music. I think part of the reason the end of the film has such an operatic sense of completion and real emotional satisfaction is that it was music first, and then refinement of the picture editing second, end quote. We have the bicycle achieving escape velocity, and finally very sentimental dialogue at the end when E.T. says, I'll be right here, goodbye. Fanfare when the spaceship goes up, and another fanfare when it turns left. And I was having a very difficult time with the orchestra trying, I would make maybe a good take for the first five, but maybe off the next two cues, and then on further cues. It's a question of what feels right if, it, if the fiddles 
sore enough. But I remember it so well, Stephen coming out to the podium and saying, I will take the f film off the screen so you can just play the music with the orchestra and with its natural phrasing, the way it ebbs and flows in its own way, and then conform the, f the film to what is the best musical performance of that thing. Very unusual. Oboes and instruments that play accent two and three, please, so we have more rhythm. All right, so let's get this straight. John Williams is having trouble hitting all of these cues, and Spielberg says, shut off the projector, play a great piece of music, move us. This move not only ensured that Williams could get the perfect performance from his musicians, but the other thing that it does is it also gives Spielberg and Littleton another swing at the bat. Now that they have the final music, essentially, they're able to create the perfect, dramatic, music-driven ending for E.T., which we will start to hear right now. We start with an emerging, hopeful statement of the flying theme on woodwinds as the flowers come back to life. Then as Elliot discovers E.T. is alive, the orchestra springs to life right along with him and delivers a joyous flying theme statement. As we see E.T.'s heart light and get confirmation that his mothership will be coming back to pick him up. But the theme is left unresolved. As the realization sets in, how do we keep this a secret? And how do we get him out of here? How do we escape the belly of the beast so he can go home and not be held captive by our well-meaning yet kind of scary and certainly bureaucratic and totally secretive government employee adults? A new theme emerges, which producer Mike Mattesino calls the fooling the adults motif, as Elliot makes the decision to escape with his friend. It's a bouncy, lighthearted theme filled with mischief. The fooling the adults motif gives way to the keys slash neighborhood theme as Mike and Elliot escape in the vans with E.T. Before they barrel off down the hill, they stop long enough for a call to action. Mike recruits his D&D buddies, the neighborhood kids, to aid in their escape. In doing so, Spielberg, according to Mike Mattesino, may have given birth to the entire movie genre of kid empowerment, embraced most famously by John Hughes. We'll certainly feel that musical empowerment as we move along. Speaking of empowerment, the neighborhood theme becomes downright heroic as Elliot and Mike manage to escape. removing the tunnel attachments from the back of the van, cutting their way out of the belly of the beast, and making their way to the rendezvous point to meet the other kids. When they do, we're treated to another intertextual nod to our popular entertainment when the kids first see E.T. Elliot tells them all about the plan and gives them instructions, and one of them asks, sincerely, about technology that he'd seen on Star Trek, a franchise that was now back in movie theaters and was 
Absolutely topical at the time, especially when considering that Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, arguably one of the best Trek movies of all time, had just arrived in theaters in the U.S. one week before the premiere of E.T. Kenny, he's a man from outer space, and we're taking him to a spaceship. Well, can he just beam up? This is reality, Greg. The movie proudly claiming that this is reality. That's great. This isn't fantasy. This is reality. The movie does an incredible job of removing any science fiction or fantasy barriers in our minds. This movie doesn't allow us to intellectualize for a second. The Star Trek intertextual moment is another example of how we seem meant to be in lockstep with these kids and their emotional journey. They're not distant, remote fantasy characters. They are us. In fact, we relive our own introduction and meeting of E.T. through the eyes of these kids. A musical recap of the movie takes place in mere moments here. First, the kids find E.T. mysterious. Then fear turns into curiosity and realization. And finally, flat-out joy at seeing and meeting E.T., like a secret wish fulfilled. Williams doesn't miss this opportunity and gives this all to us musically. First with sustained high strings. Then the call. And then a beautiful statement of the flying theme as E.T. is robed like a small god with a heart light. The kids, who just an hour earlier in the movie were giving Elliot a hard time and teasing him over his mystery goblin and not letting him play D&D, these same kids have now been deputized. And we, as an audience, are right there with them. Our mission is clear. We must get E.T. back home. And now Williams brings the fire. The gang ditches the van and bolts down the street on bicycles, now a symbol of kid empowerment. The woodwinds and strings dance in a high-pitched, odd-time signature phrase with tremendous release of energy. This is most likely where Carol Littleton used Howard Hansen's romantic second symphony as temp, which you can hear in the third and final movement here. But there's something new at play here, and it's a melody that is totally Williams. Interesting to note that it seems based on the B section of the flying theme, which previously had been trepidatious as Elliot flew on his bicycle for the first time. This flat six to the fifth type of cadence. Now it's treated like this. And notice all those perfect intervals in there. Almost like the resolution of Ozil Sprock's Zarathustra. Zarathustra. 
Unlike the first bike ride with just E.T. and Elliot, which was a bit shaky and a little scary, this new ride is fully empowered and downright heroic. As our biking kids escaped government goons in cars, cutting through dirt lots and housing developments, the music has us rooting for the kids with every pump of their bike pedals, cheering as they go over the top of a squad car and seemingly making their escape. But not for long. The police set up a barricade and there is nowhere left to go. Now, do we dare hope that E.T. can get us out of this situation? Is this the end for our kids? Is this the end for E.T.? Williams delivers us from peril with the grandest, most joyful statement of the flying theme yet. And you can practically hear a full movie house cheering. escape the armed barricade and react in amazement as they soar over suburbia, past the sunset, heading for the woods. They reach the clearing where they left the calling device, and Williams gently kicks off this ending sequence with the call. Rarely have we been given the B version of the call. We've mostly gotten it like this. And here, with the call answered, we finally get it with its hopeful statement like this. The call answered. Williams and Spielberg take their time letting the mothership land, and as it does, we get the call again on solo French horn, almost like Luke's binary sunset moment, as the kids stare on in amazement. arrives with Mary and Gertie, and even his music has been altered for the happy occasion. And it's here that we begin to say goodbye to E.T., first with Gertie, and then with Mike. Williams hangs back here, letting the dialogue do the work. He doesn't comment on it just supports the overall emotion of the scene. It isn't until Elliot walks up to E.T. that the strings start to move and stir our emotions 
preparing us for what's coming. Slowly at first, the strings move in a pattern of ascending and descending eighth notes, but each time they do, they rise in pitch to greater heights. This slowly builds the emotion and intensity as E.T. invites Elliot to come with him by simply saying, come. Elliot responds just as simply with his wish, stay. Elliot cries and the two embrace in a final hug. Mary, Elliot's mother, upon seeing this moment, falls to her knees slowly. The strings complete their ascension and pass the moment to French horns, who give us the film's strongest statement of the normally gentle friendship theme. Now, the friendship theme on brass shifts to its own ascension, like the strings did just moments earlier. The power of the orchestra builds and builds in emotional intensity here, which feels like it's perfectly in lockstep with the emotion in Elliot as he is trying to be brave on the outside to keep it together. But the music is giving us the emotional truth of the moment. E.T. looks at him knowingly and slowly raises his healing hands and long fingers to Elliot's eyes, and his healing light ignites. responds with a grandiose release of the orchestra. It seems to empower and reassure Elliot giving him the strength and dignity to let go and say goodbye. Amazingly, this isn't the end of this emotional peak. It just keeps going from here. As E.T. makes his way up the ramp, flowers in hand, and Mary stands in anticipation of the ship taking off, Williams moves us into a grand statement of the flying bee theme. which kind of serves as a preparation for an even more emotional, more grandiose statement of the flying theme that follows as the massive ship is about to take flight. The door is closing, and E.T. is looking back at his new family. We hear one last final statement of the call theme, celebrating all that they have achieved together. I've read that the movie was going to end here, but Spielberg and Littleton decided to give us one last moment of closure so that we'll all know that everything will be okay for these kids. As the ship takes off, we gently hear the flying theme, and then finally... A rainbow burst with a fanfare of trumpets as our now reunited and emotionally bonded family looks on with love.
orchestra giving us everything it's got as the movie gives us its last shot on Elliot, bringing closure to his emotional journey with a final extended chord. Thank you for listening to this three-part series on the music of E.T. the Extraterrestrial. I'd love to hear from you at soundtrackshowpodcast at gmail.com or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at SoundtrackShowDWC or on Twitter at SoundtrackDWC. Thank you.